Welcome, everyone. I'm Alka Patel, professor in UCI's Department of Art History and the PhD program in Visual Studies, specializing in the art and architecture of South Asia and the Islamic world. I'm deeply grateful to the UCI Humanities Center for supporting this new in conversation series titled Ideas with Impact, bringing university faculty together with professionals from other fields. Its principal aim is to highlight the manifold ways in which humanistic research meets today's global challenges. The series current format of less formal conversation is meant to draw in specialists as well as those generally interested in the series topics. Initially, I and Dr. Amanda Swain, executive director of the UCI Humanities Center, had envisioned ideas with impact as a once quarterly series, but it quickly transformed into five events just this academic year, attesting to my UCI colleagues encompassing consciousness and the wide relevance of their work. This is the second in our series, uh, and I will introduce the event participants. Uh, first is George Hoare, a writer and broadcaster based in London, where he works for a mental health NGO. He, along with Philip Cunliffe and Alex Hohuli, host BungaCast. His books include An Introduction to Antonio Gramsci, published with Nathan Sperber by Bloomsbury in 2016. Alex Hohuli is also a co-host of BungaCast, translator, journalist, and media consultant. He is a regular contributor to Damage Magazine and Jacobin, and is co-author of The End of the End of History, Politics in the 21st Century, along with George Hoare and Philip Cunliffe. And finally, our very own Professor Catherine Liu is Professor of Film and Media Studies at UC Irvine. Most recently, she has authored Virtue Hoarders, The Case Against the Professional Managerial Class, which is the uh, main point of discussion or the starting point today. She is also at work on a book on the theoretical historical configuration of trauma and the public sphere in the post-1968 world. So welcome, everyone. We're very eager to start the event. Thank you, Alka. And thanks to the Humanity Center and Amanda and um, Saeed for making this possible. Um, this is a great occasion for us to have George and Alex and me in conversation. Um, I want to put a plug out for their podcast, BungaCast. They've been doing it for like three or four years now. They're one of the most successful political um, podcasts around right now. They cover global history, global politics. Um, much of the material comes out of their own discontent with political um, science as a discipline and um, their own experiences in departments of political science, international relations, and political philosophy. So one of the things that um, first got us together was that I think George and Philip and um, Alex had um, read my book, American Idol, um, Academic Anti-Elitism as Cultural Critique. And it turns out that we're all really interested in populism. Um, we are... Um, 
we were really interested in the way in which um, liberalism was demonizing populism through the knots into the um, 2010s. And I've been interested really in this kind of like anti-intellectual cultural studies populism that has sort of implanted itself in academia as a kind of, I would say, pseudo left. Um, the end of the end of history, their book is sort of a culmination of a lot of stuff that they've been doing on the podcast. I think academics, um, I don't know what they're thinking about podcasts. I'm sort of deeply involved in left media right now, left podcasts. I think right now we're in, there's a kind of ecology of podcasts that sort of infotainment and some of them are very, very well, um, um, produced, but Cast is one of a number of left podcasts, I would say, provides a para-academic, para-theoretical place where you can really do um, kind of deep dive into political, geopolitical issues. And one of the things that they are doing in, in the podcast, well, as they used to be called Off Hey Bunga Bunga because they were interested in Berlusconi and Hegel. Um, please correct me, guys, if I'm wrong and mischaracterizing you. I know we're supposed to be in conversation. So no, that, if you're just like, that, that. <laughs> like, oh, my God, Catherine, that is just completely ridiculous. Um, no, so just I just want to put that out there. No, that's right. Berlusconi and Hegel. It might be a little bit opaque, but um, that's basically the story. Yeah. Yeah. Like, what is it direct? What is how can we have and they're doing the thing that like no one wants to do in a lot of um, history departments and academic departments now, like look at a total total picture. What is the direction that we're going in? What are some indicators that the end of history, which was announced by Fukuyama, is over and we're in another phase because they're really good readers of Fukuyama. So I'm not going to summarize them anymore. If you guys have questions and you're not familiar with BunkyCast, um, just think about like Napoleon at Jena and Berlusconi in a Bunga Bunga party. And then like those two images will um, create a sublation of an Aufhebung and you'll have an insight into what they're doing. So um, I was really, when I read the book, when it first came out, I was really interested. I was still I was starting to work on trauma and I was really interested in how they're describing this historical moment, like our, the 90s, really, like the 90s. And um, when everyone's declaring that the great struggles are over, Fukuyama especially, like, Socialism is dead. Um, and I saw this at, and their, their historicization is a really powerful way of saying like the projection of the end of history is really the end of the class struggle. And for me, what the professional managerial class wanted, it was like their fantasy, but there was some evidence that the history had ended. And Fukuyama is like perfect avatar of professional managerial class. Um, Values. He's both a professor. He works in you know think tanks. He's been educated at all the most prestigious places, and he's you know he's sad about the end of history. This is also what is important to understand. You know, it's not like oh my God, he's like yay, the history's ended. He's kind of like oh the great struggles are over. Not class struggle for him, but ideological struggles. And we're in the state where. Um, he feels like what are, what are going to be the great um, narratives of human history? How can we, are we headed in a direction that we can identify as um, sort of universal? You know, all those things academics are like, eh, no, we can't. But I think despite this, 
Hegel might have said, you know, the universal direction of history is for greater human emancipation. That was evidence of this in 1800, um, evidence that moved out of um, the French Revolution, greater human freedom for all human beings, and higher exercise and institutionalization of reason as a way of governing um, human societies. And I would say like liberalism actually functions as a part of all of that, part of that, you know, trajectory. Like, but liberalism doesn't, in our time, is not so focused on freedom anymore. It, liberalism wants the abolition of a very depoliticized notion of cruelty and the universalization of an idea of safety as, you know, its ideals, right? We want to be safe from the coronavirus. We want to be safe from terrorists. Um, we wanted to, we want to promote human rights as a universal principle. So I was really interested in how trauma studies fits into all of this, but I feel like I'm giving a lecture already. So, um, I, I think I'm going to stop there for now and maybe we can have more of a conversation. I was really interested in how trauma studies as it um, arises in the 1990s is definitely partaking of um, um, an, end of his, an end of history moment. Um, do you guys mind if I get really professorial and show you share a slide of Kathy Carruth's um, book on trauma studies that was uh, promoted at the end that came out in the mid 1990s, I would say like peak end of history. And I think it's kind of an astonishing document to what um, academics and what liberals thought of history. And um, there are a lot of circumstances that are, you know, um, uh, that background circumstances about how um, uh, deconstruction had been associated with um, uh, Paul DeMond's Nazi collaboration. And so um, trauma studies and Kathy Carruth is a really faithful um, student of DeMond's really wanted to um, create this kind of um, new ethics by which we would look at the historical and um, think of it in this um, sort of think of trauma as this object that the academic, the deconstructive academic, the liberal academic, they wouldn't want to think of themselves as liberals because they thought of themselves as above politics, but how we are going to look these theoretically informed, deconstructive um, academics in the late 80s, early 90s at, um, are going to look at history because deconstruction has been blamed for being non-historical. So, do, okay, I'm going to share my screen. We go. So um, this is a page from how um, uh, uh, what she's going to talk about in terms of trauma studies. The experience of this, you know, catastrophic experience produces post-traumatic stress syndrome. But I will start reading from here. I would propose that it is here in the equally widespread and bewildering encounter with trauma, both in its occurrence and, its, and, and in the attempt to understand it, that we can begin to recognize the possibility of a history that is no longer straightforwardly referential, 
I mean, that's very deconstructive, right? But we want to talk about the possibility of history that is no longer based on simple models of experience and reference because that's for dummy heads. You know, history based on experience and reference to like empirical reality, that's really silly. Um, that's really stupid for trauma studies and for the deconstructive theorists. Through the notion of trauma, I will argue that we can understand that a rethinking of reference is aimed not at eliminating history, but at resituating it in our understanding, that is, at precisely permitting history to arise where immediate understanding may not. Now, that is one of the most obfuscatory but fascinating enunciations of the impossibility of approaching or understanding history and the aporetic you know, um, relationship of the deconstructive intellectual or academic with regard to trauma. So trauma, impossibility, the, uh, the vulgarity of immediate understanding, all of these things are mobilized in this text about trauma and literature from 1996. And I feel like the straightforwardly referential idea of history is this attack on history itself so that there will be no more instruments, dialectical, archival to understand it, except for this textual reference to tra historical trauma, which for trauma studies was really privileged as the um, Holocaust. So I'm going to actually stop there, but I, I just want to say one thing about PTSD and um, post-traumatic stress syndrome and how important it was in 96. It was definitely associated with totalitarianism and totalitarianism was by this point at the triumphal moment at the end of the Cold War associated with socialism and fascism. So the Holocaust and the collapse of the Soviet state kind of like similar events in this history that eluded our immediate understanding. And for me, um, George's, Phillips, and Alex's continued work in their podcast about the sort of post-political depoliticization of history and then history's return has been really, really important to me. Okay, so I've really gone on. And I'm going to be quiet now. And um, you guys didn't interrupt me or say anything. So um, I'm going to pass it to George first or Alex. Who's uh, Alex I, I think I'm, I'm going first. <laughs> so thanks very much, Catherine. Um, and thanks for that discussion of our book. And thanks to the UCI Humanities Center as well for making this possible. Um, just to make a call back to Catherine's introduction. I mean, yeah, us as a podcast, we've seen Berlusconi riding in on his horse. Uh, as an avatar of the end of history. And though Berlusconi isn't someone who indulges in sharing his own trauma, that's not his bag. He wants to sell himself as a fun, dynamic, successful, and sexy kind of guy. Um, there, you can already see an element which Catherine touches on in her book in Virtue Hoarders, which is a breakdown of public and private and the flaunting of supposed private virtues as uh, political factors. Right. And so Berlusconi does that very well. Um, and if you aren't very familiar with Berlusconi, just think of Trump. Basically, Berlusconi was Trump 20 years earlier. Um, so to uh, to get started, actually, but I, I want to say Italian style, Italian it, style, Italian Trump style. Yeah, but maybe Trump is a bit Italian. Anyway, that, that's a conversation maybe for another time. Uh, <laughs> I, 
I what I want to do here is firstly just say that Catherine's book has been very helpful in pulling together several pieces that we lay out in the end of the end of history, as well as adding a huge amount of color and depth to aspects that are in our book that concern the middle class socially, as well as the left politically. Um, so what I want to do in, in kind of trying to put uh, stand Catherine's virtue orders and our uh, the end of the end of history up against one another is to discuss the the PMC the professional near managerial class in three historical phases kind of following along the periodization that we propose in our book so basically the post war period until 1989 or let's say the cold war period 1989 until 2016 which is uh, real the real end of history period and then 2016 until today which we call the end of the end of history so the PMC, um, I think, as it was conceived and as Catherine discusses in her book, uh, was seen as often a junior partner uh, of the left, part of a kind of progressive alliance between uh, the liberal middle class and the working class. But the PMC, uh, at least until the 1960s, was um, yeah, very much the junior partner. What Catherine book describes, and this kind of right at the beginning of the book, I think it's on page one, is that since the 1960s, the PMC has sought to set itself apart, no longer following the lead of the working class, but kind of setting itself apart, seeing itself as a paragon of virtue. And it often does this against the working class. Basically, the failure of the 1960s revolt and the shadow that that cast over the 70s and 80s led a lot of uh, left-leaning uh, middle-class people to think that the workers had failed them. And so they went off in search of new subjects of history, right? So this could be ethnic and sexual minorities within society or even kind of lumpen proletarians or criminal underclass, or indeed uh, off in the third world and to see kind of anti-colonial revolts, uh, uh, post-colonial uh, struggles okay. as uh, as the new subjects of... Are, am I okay now? Can you... Can you hear me all right? Um, Am yeah, I still breaking up? Now you're okay. I just wanted okay. to, um, Amanda asked that maybe we should spell out professional managerial yeah. class more, but that's fine. Okay. I mean, do you want to go ahead and, and do that as, as it's uh, as it's your bag? And then I'll um, on. The professional managerial class, a term defined um, in 1977 by John and Barbara Ehrenreich, um, are people um, who are educated and credentialed who um, dominate the liberal professions. Okay. There I'll, we I'll go. And so what's interesting, I mean, I'm trying to maybe look at how the professional managerial class has changed or, uh, you know, has uh, reoriented um, over recent history. So as I was saying, you know, the, the, the PMC starts to see itself particularly as a cultural vanguard, not sexist and racist like the masses, that it has better habits and mores, um, that it believes maybe even an edgy transgression rather than normie morality, um, which is something that Catherine discusses in the book in reference to uh, Angela Nagel's book, Kill All Normies. Um, and in, in, this, um, in, this in, in a more political context, uh, you could see its pursuit of, of a certain sort of radicalism as always pursued against the masses. So, you know, Hillary Clinton, who Catherine holds up as the arch professional managerial class or an avatar of the professional managerial class, you know, she denounced uh, a large section of the masses as deplorables. Uh, the PMC uh, in this phase in history is always in search of new frontiers for equality, especially if it antagonizes the masses. Um, and we can see, for example, certain activist concerns today, for example, around trans politics. And I know I'm stepping into stepping into a hornet's nest. I'm not sure if that's the right uh, metaphor, but I am um, where whatever you might think specifically of, of the kind of trans issues, 
a lot of trans activists seem to find uh, a lot of purpose in the fact that their reconceptualization of gender uh, or the attempt to transcend, transcend a traditional understanding of the gender binary, the fact that that might antagonize a lot of people uh, is, a, is an actual selling point rather than something to, to be overcome, to try to win people over. Um, and so that uh, that kind of form of political practice of the PMC is often set against the masses rather than trying to pull the masses along uh, in its in its political project. Okay, so what happens at the end of history? What happens as of the 1990s? Catherine's already referenced the sort of end of class antagonism, the, the end of naked class confrontation, you know, the, the, the decline of trade unions, uh, less working class participation politics uh, in all levels of, of, of politics and public life. And this allowed the PMC, which at this stage had grown and metastasized in along with the growth in uh, so-called you know, jobs like symbolic analysts, the growth of academia, of the third sector, of NGOs, and so on, of foundations, um, that, the, that the PMC kind of now was able to stand somehow on its own two feet and become this truly post-historical class. It could ignore real conflicts. It doesn't really believe in uh, interests. Uh, it doesn't have any, it's, any great revolutionary goals as the old working class maybe once had, nor does it share the conservative imperatives that uh, the big bourgeoisie has. What the PMC seeks to do, um, and this is something that Catherine outlines very well in her book, is a, a basically an aim to perfect capitalism and to perfect it through its uh, adherence to progressivism. So this is a world without material interest. For the PMC, there's only a hierarchy of knowledge. You have those who know, those who are educated. The PMC are characterized by having passed through institutions of higher education. Uh, and those who don't, which is to say the masses at large and populist politicians who um, uh, you know, who, who, who played to their uh, who played to their prejudices as the, the PMC. I just want to interrupt and say, you know, it's all there in the Carruth um, literature and trauma book because there are those people who expect the immediacy of history, and then there are those of us who understand trauma and the aporetic nature of the his, the historical. And so, what you described there is a perfect um, example of this kind of um, um, obfuscation and then expertise that happens almost in the same yeah. gestures. And then obfuscation is often, I mean, I don't think that the PMC are thinking of themselves self-consciously as a class. In fact, it's very much the opposite. You know, in this new world of the 90s and 2000s and 2010s, even where class has been evacuated from the scene, the PMC itself sees itself as universal. It's now outside history. Um, it can then just dedicate itself to better management. So ensuring meritocracy is honored through equality of opportunity, and in seeking distinction for itself. So that's maybe through ethical consumption, for example. Again, uh, here we see this element of the breakdown of public and private that I referred to uh, just a second ago, where uh, in this world of no more, of, of a lack of grand ambitions, grand projects, no idea of social development, let alone revolution, the PMC's private sphere and its habitus takes on ever greater importance. So uh, large, the middle sections of uh, the middle chapters of Catherine's book are very much about uh, you know, what the PMC eats, how it shops, how it raises its kids or its exercises, and how that's taken as public virtue rather than mere private preferences, which is what they actually are. Uh, and, they're, and they're used uh, in, in that exercise of, of public virtue as a way to chastise the masses. But again, because this is a world where class is no longer discussed, class no longer figures, the PMC themselves don't see what they're doing as forms of class domination. Uh, it's really just them being more advanced people as against the backwards people. 
Okay, so to round this out, what happens when the end of history comes to an end, right? So this is in our book, we discuss this primarily as, 26, as a moment in 2016, where the unresolved contradictions of the 2008 global financial crisis come home to roost. And they come home to roost in the US through the election of Trump um, and the white and the rejection of uh, managerial technocracy that, that he represents, and in the UK through Brexit and the rejection of the European Union and this sort of distant form of authority, which is undemocratic and uh, and and somehow alien, right? Um, and, but the, of course, the, the the end of the end of history is is in some ways a, a more universal thing than just uh, the US and the UK. But they're so clearly expressed in 2016 in the US and the UK that that's uh, what we spend a lot of time talking about. So what happens? Um, as a consequence of uh, of these of these political splits, is that I I, I mean my, the way I would put it is that you have a politicization and a radicalization of the middle class and the middle class kind of splits and so on the one hand you have the PMC that I've been talking about the professional managerial class which is more liberal more technocratic more managerial and on the other hand you have the uh, threatened old middle class or petite bourgeoisie, the lower uh, of, of you know small business owners who are often more uh, populist, more right wing, and uh, maybe don't have the same adherence to credentialization that the PMC has. Um, they're more oriented to the market uh, as against the PMC who are more oriented to institutions and the state. Um, a lot of what has happened, I think, in the past couple of years is that the end of the end of history meant or was meant uh, to mean a return of politics to the scene. So after politics had been pushed to the sides and everything was about consensus and about the finding the correct technical responses to social questions, suddenly antagonism returns to the scene. But what's happened is that a lot of that antagonism has been channeled into a culture war. And that culture war, I think fundamentally, is a face-off between two faces of the middle class, between the PMC and between the, and the petty bourgeoisie. And I think there's a really telling line uh, in Catherine's book, which I want to just read out, which is that conservatives, uh, which includes, uh, you know, kind of Fox News or right populist Trump, etc. Conservatives need a functioning and powerful PMC cadre to serve as punching bags for their politics of popular resentment. So here you have it laid out that the, the, that these two sides are in, are in effect symbiotic that the right populist politics needs the PMC, and it needs it, I think, to conceal its own absence of vision and lack of solutions. And the same applies vice versa. The, 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 the liberal PMC needs this specter of uh, both conservative elites in, a, in alliance with supposedly uh, uh, you know, retrograde masses who are prone to demagoguery as a way to advance and to continue on its project of of appearing progressive, of perceiving, uh, excuse me, presenting as enlightened and progressive and more advanced than the masses, which it kind of seeks to leave behind or uh, at best to educate into being better citizens. Um, so I, I think here we can ask a question um, and maybe being a bit provocative here, but which might get us to the nub of what the PMC actually represents today. The uh, kind of right populists who channel all this uh, resentment about, uh, you know, kind of diminished horizons, about um, about the condescension of the PMC, and fundamentally about declining living standards towards, um, you know, the kind of expert class, uh, the managers, the PMC as a whole, um, and it in channeling that that anger against them and channeling that resentment, um, what it I guess is 
putting on the table or what it's proposing is a world without the PMC, or at least a world where the PMC has been neutered and has lost the cultural authority that it currently has. In effect, uh, stop the PMC from hoarding virtue. What is this image? What is this world that's on that's being sold by the right populists? And I think it's really just in some ways the status quo ante. That world would be a world of a more disorganized capitalism. So you wouldn't have the PMC ensuring proper procedures are followed, uh, the independence of institutions, that you know risk assessments are properly followed out, and that things are properly credentialized in the way they were. Uh, and you also wouldn't have the PMC ensuring a very minimum equality of opportunity. Now, what is this minimal equality of opportunity that the PMC proposed? It's to make sure, effectively, that class domination remains colorblind, right? So you can't have any racial, sexual, gender advantages in life. Right, but of course you can have the blunt force of economic inequality fundamentally shaping life forever and forever. Um, but it can never, it cannot have any class, it cannot have any racial or gender aspects to it. Right, so just pure economic inequality. What is this uh, vision of, uh, of of a world without the PMC that that's proposed? This is um, a less organized capitalism, as I said, but it's also maybe a more vulnerable capitalism, one that's more vulnerable to overthrow. Um, and so there we get back to what the PMC was defined as by uh, Barbara and John Ehrenreich back in the 70s, which its role is fundamentally to reproduce capitalist culture. And so here, I think in this light, we can maybe see the PMC as a way of smoothing over uh, the harsh aspects of capitalism. So what are we to conclude? The PMC then is not just the post-historical class par excellence, but is also perhaps an anti-revolutionary class. Yeah, I would agree. Okay, um, there are some questions, but I think I'm going to save them and uh, have George um, go next, and then hopefully we'll have some. Um, uh, I have some um, questions that I want to raise. I I want to talk about another an acronym that these guys came up with: um, neoliberal breakdown disorder syndrome (NOBS). Because we just love acronyms: NOBS, PMC. What else got? Oh. Yeah, I mean, I, PTSD. I want to talk about knobs, okay. knobs being the PTSD of the PMC. But I we'll think just... I, I think that yeah, there's a lot of three and four letter acronyms there. But that's actually what I what I was going to talk about a little bit anyway. So hopefully I might try and um, uh, cover that. But yeah, just so just to say thank you to Catherine for for inviting us and to Alka Madden side for for making this happen. Um, I think this, you know, we've been having this conversation, Catherine, you might remember April 2019, I think it was, um, recording an episode of the podcast on postmodernism, which I think was a really interesting one and live in Southeast London. So yeah, great to be continuing this um, uh, <laughs> across, internationally across uh, across Zoom. So I think it was my suggestion, the, the title um, of, the, of this uh, kind of discussion, the new class analysis perspectives, from the academy and beyond and so that's you, you might say quite a classically academic style title anodyne maybe maybe not um but probably incumbent on me a little bit then to say what i was trying to to get out and, and why i think this kind of this captures some of the interesting things um in maybe in, in our book and certainly in in catherine so i think there's there has been in the last few years um and probably as a result of, of some of the things that Alex and Catherine have already talked about in terms of global politics. I would say a renewed importance of class-based analyses of, of politics. It's kind of strange to say that 
um, that these would have come back on the left because you might say that they they should never really have have gone away. But you do see now, and maybe across the whole political spectrum, a lot of people talking about a kind kind of many potentially different names for this this same group. So the, the PMC, Michael Lynn talks about the managerial overclass. Um, Joel Kotkin talks about the clerisy. There's certainly a I think a recognition that there is a, a role, an increased role, an importance of the middle class. Piketty um, calls them profession. Piketty calls them a managerial elite, to global managerial elite. So that's important. There's, there's, there's clearly something going on with the the managers of the world, um, whether they're uniting or not. Um, but what I think is particularly great about Catherine's book is that it's an analysis of of the, how this class experiences the world, the, the professional managerial class. Um, and, you know, in, in academies, you might call this their, their habitus, but it's certainly their cultural and moral world. This, this, the way that particularly these highly educated um, Americans, maybe some of whom um, resident in, in the great state of California, how they are living, raising their children. Um, I think it, it, it definitely, um, I should also say it resonated with me and my, my own <coughs> kind of experience of, of the world um, as, as uh, probably a member of this, of this class. But I think the, the um, as Alex had already sort of said, we, in, in our book, we, we approach this from a slightly different angle and try to look at the specific response of this class to, to what I think Catherine correctly framed as a traumatic event. So particularly Brexit in the, in the British context and Trump in the American context, how was it that this group of people who have class of people who have a particular authority, a moral, political, cultural authority, how do they respond to these two kind of signal events, which essentially show maybe that that, that authority is not absolute, that people may not uh, listen to their, their expert um, advice. So, yeah, and we talk about this in terms of neoliberal order breakdown syndrome or knobs. And it's essentially the response of this group who are not able to explain, to respond, to understand um, what's happened in, in 2016 in these in these um, two events. So I think the sort of the reason why I think this idea of new class analysis is, is so important or why I would just kind of bring it back a little bit, not to get in too much into the de definitions of classes, but I think there's a there's a kind of a, a big thesis here, which which I think is is definitely worth us talking about a little bit, which is essentially that the the defeat of the organized working class, particularly, well, certainly across the West um, in the 80s and 90s, this deprives capitalism, deprives the capitalist class, the bourgeoisie of their dynamism. So if you have this situation where these two kind of main classes in society um, have lost their historic, the historic kind of dynamism that class struggle gives them, this potentially leaves the historical scene open for an increased importance of the of the PMC of the middle class, um, and so yeah, I think that's that's probably a, a more or less shared uh, common starting point that, that we have. And I think one of the reasons why I've enjoyed and I think I've read it, uh, yeah, we we had an episode on this on the podcast, read it then, reread it. Now I think the the thing that really makes me think about Catherine's book or Catherine's work more generally is how. So virtue hoarders, this is what Catherine explains that this, this group do, um, but how, how do they turn this virtue, this kind of like 
moral superiority into a material into material gains how do you make virtue pay i think this is the sixty-four thousand dollar question if you will how do you move from the kind of the the culture wars to the material basis like who wins who who loses how do you if you hoard this virtue it's great to be virtuous sure but how do you get something out of it and and what's that's the i think the big question that could potentially be um a crucial one for politics in the in the coming few years across across western societies um and just a couple more more quick reflections um because i can see the, the questions stacking up and it'd be great to get kind of back to round table discussion um in terms of the british context this this point about the split within the pmc that alex talked about a little bit i think it is quite clear that you have certainly within the, the british pmc this upper group who are in professions fairly economically stable and then a, a lower group who are much more downwardly mobile um you could sort of say that the upper group are liberal democrats politically the lower group corbynites um the upper groups work in profession the lower groups work for an for an ngo say um and this this lower group who who can't get themselves onto the to the property ladder um who this is really what powered left populism and i think this as the left populist so the corbynite the sanders project um is is very much in in remission or in uh, it's probably just completely over now you would you would say um where does this group go and i mean my hypothesis would be that they will probably need to differentiate themselves from the working class to whom they are at risk of, of falling into in the 2010s in britain you had this discourse around chavs which might or might not be familiar to to kind of to people um watching or, or listening along and this was essentially a construction of the the, the white specific the um, British working class as racist, as xenophobic, as stupid, Burberry-wearing um, idiots, essentially. Will this come back? Quite possibly. Has it already come back, but under a different, under different branding? Maybe. Is that same split re replicated across different national contexts? That's another question. But I guess one of the, probably the, the, the big question here is if we all accept this what, what Catherine's already um, talked about and from our book and, you know, and I think some of the key points of her book that the PMC is, is certainly playing a political role of um, either direct or indirect opposition to working class interests. What do you, you know, what, what, what do you want to do about it? Um, there's some interesting international kind of uh, comparisons here. Maybe there's, um, in the Swedish case, there's kind of beginnings of a, of, a, of a move against what's called in that context, the transferiat. So another name for this kind of intermediate class. Um, and so this is the idea that if you have this group of people who have this shared material interest, and it's not the same material interest as a bigger group, um, then mobilize that, that bigger group and take the state transfers away from, um, from this, this political group. So, I mean, I think um that's always obviously the question what are you what are you going to do about it um but and i think this is uh one of the the questions which has come through in right. the chat that's right so um why don't we take alka's question first and then um we can go through um i have so alka asked so what would be the way forward as if we could rid ourselves of the foil of pmc populism if if we did rid ourselves of the foil of pmc populism there would be a vacuum and I think this kind of goes back to what um, um, 
Alex was describing is that if the right wins in, you know, electorally in our sort of really, really damaged um, liberal um, societies, what you would have is not necessarily a vacuum. You would have um, chaos, raw economic exploitation. You'd have um, a massive deregulation and raw and um, that rawness, Alex is saying is like, that could actually lead to like greater political change and um, confrontation. And I want to just say that when Trump was president, and I'm not, you know, nostalgic for him, except I am nostalgic for his tweets, there was a kind of um, um, anti-normativity. The, the PMC's power was shaken, deeply, deeply shaken, as with Brexit as well. And for me, as someone very far on the left, I thought that was more exciting, more possible that there could actually be coalitions made. So, um, our confidence in ourselves are shaking, let, shaken and that, you know, the centrist line, the centrist technocratic depoliticizing line of HRC and the mainstream Democrats, as well as, you know, um, the um, Blairite Labor Party in Britain were, were shaken by Trump and Brexit. And I felt like, wow, there's a possibility for real economic, political change here. There's a new politics. And now we've gone back into slumberland with Joe Biden. Everyone's like telling us to shut up, be quiet. You know, this is this is normal. This is how thing, you know, every, all the experts are in charge. Um, no worries. And we're back into that kind of political stasis that actually um, the end of the end of history describes so well. And so we're caught, I think, in this infernal cycle between when, um, when a right wing, right wing populist rejection of PMC values creates actually an opening for the left, Corbyn and Sanders for, to begin, um, and then the sort of centrist liberal rise to power. Um, I don't know what you would call Boris Johnson, but you know, certainly Joe Biden um, allows for is actually much more disciplinary of the left and the far or, and socialists than, um, you know, I would say like anything else than the right wing um, electoral victories. The other thing I, I wanted to say was, okay, I forgot what I was going to say. Okay, Alex, do you want uh, to I, respond to yeah, that? Yeah, I, I just wanted to, like, yeah. What, yeah, would, I mean, I think, what would be, the, if we got rid of the PMC populist antagonism, what would be next? What would be the... Yeah, I mean, I think what, what's interesting, what you've hinted at there is that what you're already seeing is something that uh, our, uh, Chris Bickerton calls techno-populism, which is a fusion between, you know, technocratic managerialism and the populism that we've seen challenge technocracy over the past you know, decade, really. You could call the 2010s the populist decade. Uh, and you can see Boris Johnson doing that, you know, uh, Joe Biden to a certain extent as well. I mean, I, you know, Joe Biden represents basic continuity with the Trump administration, in my view. Um, and so you can see there, even the kind of centrist Democrats being able to be flexible and incorporate certain populist messaging, certain populist policies or approaches as a way of, uh, as a way of like reconstituting their authority. And you can see like, I think the example in the UK is probably most clear where Boris Johnson is able to kind of shed the more, like let's say neoliberal aspects or Thatcherite aspects of the conservatives policy to become more, I don't want to say welfareist because that'd be too too grand, but to a certain extent, try to win over sections of the working class, which always used to vote labor by offering them um, greater support or maybe greater, um, you know, try to rebalance regional inequalities, for example. 
Um, that's not happening here in the United States. Like it's more, um, it's more uh, cruel than you could possibly imagine. It is, yeah. it is. But you do have, you do have like the Biden administration spending a lot more than it did previously. So I'm not saying that that's like some great response to some great social demand, but there is an aspect of kind of, you know, the cash transfers coming in and people kind of, you know, being like, okay, well, at least they're giving us something. Um, so there, I think populism has forced the technocrats, to put it this way, has forced the technocrats to at least respond and take into account um, popular anger in a way that for the past 30 years, they've been able to just completely ignore it. Oh, yeah, I mean, you could, yeah, yeah, you could, you could say that, in fact, um, the populists forced the technocrats to kind of stage a bit of a, a, a striking back. I mean, if I mean, the, you could say the wider political context here of, of COVID, this is very much a um, a restoration of the power of technocracy. Like, I think it's, I think it's difficult to to argue with that. We are currently um, in a in a in a across the world in societies where the expertise, particularly medical expertise, ha is having a real social and political um, real force. Um, and, and it really like um, creates this kind of moralizing divide too. And we've seen this, you know, I wanted to call like everything like mask hoarders, um, vaccine hoarders, um, quarantine hoarders, like people really, really are divided along whether or not you're obeying the mandates and whether or not you have skepticism. And if you do, then you're like a crazy, you know, nut job who, you know, is questioning um, COVID policy. So questioning COVID policy right now is like going to push you to the. I I can't even say it because I'm. Oh, in a I mean, I, I would. No, I would. I would say that the. Um, you know, whatever you think about the actual. Um, the, the rules themselves that certainly the 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 kind of the the cultural status and the like medical experts today are you know are, are household names I mean that if you had said that five years ago that would have been quite right. would have been quite surprising um but now it's you know and I think I think that it, I think it is correct to link it to the you know to the, the structure of the conflicts that we've had in the intervening period because it, it is ultimately who you know where does that authority come from and where does the political power come from so, yeah and i think you know... that sorry george no i was just going to say that you know your point i think is absolutely right about it being an attempt at restoration i guess the question is and maybe kind of looking at what alka was sort of asking in terms of what next is that there might be an overreach right there's might be an overreach right. from the technocrats and we're already seeing a lot of resistance to that in in europe um and even if it doesn't lead to revolts what it's leading to is a greater social fragmentation where people, where the basic um, question of knowledge becomes, puts into question, right? So you, we just, large ways of the people just simply do not believe what the, the message that they're told anymore about, you know, about science or whatever else, about epidemiology and so on. So I think, um, you know, in 2022, the, there is going to be a punishment of um, the democratic alignment with the tech, with this technocratic authoritarianism. Um, but I want to move on. Um, Joanna Jaffer has a question. It's not really a question. So I'm going to say like, I, I, I'm not, we're, we're not going to try to answer this question, Johanna. There are people who want to be private about their traumas and um, they're, they have to advertise their privacy online or something like that. And it's... Um, so I, do, do you mind if I just, oh, not please. directly on this, but just, please, just jump please, in? Because yeah, I mean, a lot of your initial comments were on, were on trauma and I, Thanks. I, and I did, I did, um, try and pose you this question before we before we started 
but I think it's a it's a really interesting kind of lens through which to try to understand contem contemporary subject formation, if that's not too jargony a way to put it, like how do we understand who we are essentially? Um, because you might say previously in the 90s, particularly, you had this uh, ideas of risk, um, Ulrich Beck's works, insecurity, like that's what the state is there to protect people um, from risks, from interpersonal risks. Um, and you said about sort of safety and anti-cruelty. I think this, this is where the idea of human rights comes in and looking internationally, maybe even humanitarian intervention. But there's, um, so Peter Ramsey's book, The Insecurity State, he says there's a difference between the vulnerable subject and the vulnerated. I think he specifically put that to make it difficult to say, the vulnerated subject. So the, the harm has already happened. So trauma is like the harm, it's not the harm that could happen, it's the harm that's already happened. So does this basically mean that, um, and so I didn't put this question to you fully before, so I'm kind of putting you on the spot here, Catherine, but do you think this, this like, if trauma is the way that we understand ourselves as subjects, is that possibility of like of the, the state protecting people, is it already defeated? It's already like the, 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 the horse has already bolted, like the trauma has okay. already been suffered. So you have to be restorative rather than protective. Um... I don't really have that. That's a really interesting question. Um, but I, I don't think that the state is about that, that the sort of liberal state and the liberal public face of trauma informed policies are about protecting us from ever having trauma. I think one of the things about this kind of vulnerable, vulnerable vulnerability that is fetishized by the liberal PMC is that we're always already traumatized. Right. And, this kind of um, what we what the state wants to do is include trauma as part of its policy because we're always already traumatized. So rather than having this idea of someone asked about um, Christopher Lash, but you know the early um, Democrats like we're being very Eurocentric. This is what I'm trained in. I'm in a Western-based university. I'm sorry, but. Um, if you have other examples, please put them in the chat and educate me, school me. But the earliest forms of democracy had to do with a kind of civic virtue that had to do with both the notions of sacrifice of your self-interest, sacrifice even of your body, sacrifice of your personal well-being for the um, well-being of the state. Like, that's like really important part of Athenian democracy. Um, and that's like held up as our um, ideal. So that that subject of Athenian democracy is not valorized because they are they are vulnerable. They're valorized because they're stoic, because they have a kind of civic virtue. Here, to, there's been this transformation, and I think it actually has to do with the end of the end of history. I haven't thought about it completely through. Like I think up until 1972, we probably had a really flawed, fucked up, patriarchal, repressive form of civic virtue where only like really like um plain spoken white men who sounded like your pilot on your low on your last flight could operate politically now we want to include um this account of trauma in our very subjects and we're um rewarded if we're rich and famous already for being able to publicize that trauma um prince harry who you know, I have a soft spot for it because he's a ginger. Um, and Oprah have started a new Apple TV series called The Me You Don't See about famous people telling 
us about how they've suffered these enormously terrible, terrible personal events. Lady Gaga has been sexually assaulted. She talks about that. Harry, of course, talks about the loss of his mother. Um, Oprah came out as being having been a victim of childhood sexual assault, so she can maintain this kind of thing. There is this kind of production of empathy that I think goes back to what Alex was saying about the PMC's willingness to perfect capitalism. Like, look, there's all this cruelty, but let's, like, create this kind of highly you know, this high, this very popular, easily consumable forms of empathy that are really going to be profitable for Apple and Oprah and mm. Prince Harry. Um, so I, so that, um, that vulnerability, the staging of that vulnerability is highly restricted, reified, and it's become content production. We don't really want to hear about like you, um, the, ordinary working class person's vulnerability. No one wants, no one wants to hear about that. And, and I think this is like part of a shift toward, I mean, this is an old discussion, but towards post-material values. And I, I guess, I mean, I, I just want to say obviously that I feel the same as Prince Harry as someone who suffered the trauma of being ginger. Um, I, I must be the same as a royal. That's the function of trauma, right? It has this equalizing effect of empathizing with powerful people and so on. Um, but I think like that, that's kind of the, the question when you transfer these questions over to kind of the realm of the post-material, um, where, where trauma is a good example of that, uh, or at least the kind of uh, commodified trauma that, that Catherine and you, you describe, where questions of material interest get kind of pushed to the side because everybody has a Everybody has a has a, a story of trauma and overcoming that they can that they can well, use, right? Or that you certainly yeah. you could try and, to shape and, one for yourself. And, you know, this is but, absolutely right. The the inclusive language of trauma excludes economic trauma. Like they don't want to hear about you being like, I'm down to my last twenty and I have to feed my family. But that's I think not, also that's not I, that's not the yeah. PNC. What I, what I was going to say when. Um, Alex's point made me think there's also an in like well, it's kind of obvious that everyone has their own story and everyone's story being different means that it's of course individualized and so any structural causes of of, of trauma um are are you know uh, obfuscated or or you know individualized and narrativized in such a way that it's not you know it's not seen to be a social production it's very it's very individualistic and it's very you know that and that's part of what gives I guess that particular story it's authenticity that it's not um it's not like other stories it's 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 unique to particularly to that to that celebrity but, and and of yet course. the ways in which the celebrities frame their story tell are enormously similar i'm not, I, I have like video clips of this stuff i'm not going to show it today right now but it's like yes everyone is different you there's this you know, talking about um, there's this a lot of lip service being paid to like the difference of our stories. And I do believe that everyone has been traumatized, but I don't believe that this kind of PMC modeling of um, trauma storytelling is a way of getting any kind of healing done individually or collectively or socially. I think it's actually what Alex was saying more like it's actually a block to creating any of the, I mean, it my, actually my, that happening. My, I guess my question is sort of what, you know, what, 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 what's the material aspect of this? And it seems like there's a, you know, if, if you, um, if your analysis of, of the professional managerial class is that it's quite a, there's a lot of um, ambitious individuals, uh, highly credentialized and fewer uh, and fewer, or maybe even the, the same number of, 
of desirable positions in the media, in academia, so on and so forth, then, you know, is I guess the question becomes the extent to which this is a um, a sort of uh, a, a tool in the com in the intra PMC competition for 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 places, and I think this is you know one of the things which the um, virtue hoarders book is you know really makes you think is like okay so all of this this virtue hoarding that's being done is because if you are more virtuous than your PMC competitor you can kind of you know elbow them out the way and and you get the you get the whatever it is you're competing for I mean yeah yeah. Yeah, no, I think that's true. There's another term. All right, there's another question here. Um, but I just also wanted to say that with um regard to like this reified language of trauma and healing, there's another term that the um knobs love is resilience. So they hate fragility. You have to be resilient about trauma. They know how to get it there, done there. I, I wanted to talk more about the sort of um scapegoating of the working class uh, with regard to this language of tolerance of trauma, but we'll come back to that. So there's another question here. Um, to be provocative, would we say that the PMC has the revolutionary class imperative to pass from a capitalism dominated by the bourgeoisie, the owner class, to a hyper-capitalism of Lenin-type imperialism dominated by the expert coordinator class? Ooh, that's a good question. I, I think this, doesn't this get the causality backwards? I mean, I think it's an interesting point, but it's the fact that, you know, Lenin-type imperialism with, or, you know, monopoly capitalism is exactly what produces the PMC, right? It produces right. this relatively wide section of, of, of society. I mean, I say relatively because, of course, it's not a majority in society, but whatever, maybe in, in somewhere like the U.S., maybe 20% of, of uh, society falls I think 25%, 25%. Okay. Yeah, where you know you're you're formerly a worker, you know you're employed in a in a in a large institution, but you have much greater autonomy than other workers, and often have uh, managerial responsibilities which set you aside, set you apart from from the rest. And then, of course, what you know the, the whole point about reproducing capitalist culture. And so, it's only in a situation of of uh, you know of of imperial of cap of imperialism in that in that historical phase that you get this. Um, PMC becoming so important and actually pushes to the side the authority of the traditional bourgeoisie who'd like used to directly own factories. Now they don't. You have shares and things and so on. So, so the the grand bourgeois like um, who owned a, a factory could cultivate um, their taste in yeah. aesthetics. We we, I, we I, don't see that anymore. That's gone. That's gone. Yeah. Those people are not doing that anymore. Okay, but we're I, I, do wanna, I did want to just raise raise something which is interesting, just in relation to the kind of anti PMC thing, which is that people seem to hate, I mean, the kind of populist insurrection as it, as it is, like hate the PMC more than they do the actual bourgeois, right, than the, than the billionaires. And that's something that's maybe worth exploring as a kind of to tack that onto the question. Yeah, oh yeah, oh, yeah. That, that is, we need to come back to that, remind me to come back to that. But we've got another question here. Isn't knobs or neoliberal order breakdown syndrome just another case of the culture of narcissism in the sense that it seems to be about a class being completely and utterly unable to imagine different material interests and cultural preferences to their own? Yeah, I, I think this, um, I would kind of put it a different, a different way. Um, and I might, uh, yeah, so let, let's see if I, if, if I can kind of explain this clearly. I think the the only way, that, or it was an important aspect of, of um, the Brexit vote and Trump that all of the like professional politics analysts didn't see it coming. Like you have you have two outcomes and 
like it was such a shock and and what explains the kind of incomprehension and the inability to like think yeah there could have been <laughs> there could be two outcomes one of the two has happened this is not like some like million to one shot or whatever mm-hmm. um, and I think the only way that that can be explained is because this class is socially very detached from the nation like I think it has to be put in in national terms in and I mean and that is a sort of narcissism that um, but I think it has a material cause there is a like there is a um, a, a real decline of uh, or, or a real cultural political distance such that the political elites didn't understand their co-citizens and I think no, that's, I think that's the a only, really only thing that I think explains it that I think that's a really important um, point and that has to do with what Alex had talked about a little earlier too which is this kind of um, um, symbolic analyst who li- lives in this dematerialized world and one of the material um, bounds of our existences has to do with both the place in which we are and that place being situated within a nation with an infrastructure, a national interest, etc. And that the PMC is so divorced from that um, sensibility now. And this goes this goes into the next question, which I thought was really interesting, and I want to answer this question. Um, thought experiment. What would Hegel make of the PMC? I know he struggled with not being able to see how the poor and rich rabble could be sublated, but if memory serves, he had high hopes for the highly educated. You know, many people say Hegel was a theorist of the national state bureaucracy. Like he hoped, what his hopes were for Napoleon. Like you, we've got to remember this. Conquering Europe was creating a rational bureaucracy, standardized um, economic and political institutions, because if you think of what Napoleon was sweeping through, he was really sweeping through Germany, you know, the states of Germany, the states of what we know today as Italy. And these are some of the most backward, feudal, like court societies who were still nostalgic for like Louis the 14th type um, monarchical rule and they and Napoleon was sweeping through Europe for Hegel destroying the um um the institutions of this atavistic you know really really horrific catholic in many cases bourgeois um aristocracy like he was bringing in modernity so Hegel's thinking about modernity now the PMC doesn't have to be reactionary it is reactionary today but as we think of like bureaucracy or state bureaucracies or you know that Bismarck eventually puts into place to redistribute economic economic treasures you need good institutions and I think Hegel understood that you need disciplined yeah. professionals. Our profession, I am not anti-professional. Like, here's the thing is that I feel like the PMC today has completely reneged on any kind of professional standard. So, Alex, when you were drawing the line between, like, this, you know, highly regulated PMC, um, liberal triumph, and then this chaotic, you know, Mad Max, like, right-wing populist state, I feel like we are, we have the worst of all worlds. We have this, like, right-wing Mad Max, you know, regulatory capture state where, you know, Big Pharma funds Fauci and... And, and you know funds the um cdc and we have like this sclerotic you know expertise um technocratic yeah. um rule as well and 
but the thing is, it's like within the core of every single institution right now involved with the professional manager class, you guys talk about this too. There's a naturalized like complicity between capital and these institutions, which should have been shielding us from the market. And you can call that corruption, or you can call that this is, you can call that the reality of our, you know, um, um, post-neoliberal age, which is basically like yeah. gangster capitalism married to um, a very, very, very um, out of touch um, upper nether region professional manager class with like lots of people at the bottom scrabbling to get into that out of touch world because everyone wants to be that out of touch. Yeah, I mean, and you could, see, you could ask the question, like does that professionalized bureaucracy that Hegel dreamt of. I mean, one, it obviously has accomplished its goal, but, you know, it was an agent of modernization, along with the army, actually, in many cases, which itself is its own bureaucracy. But leaving that to one side, you know, if it's achieved its goal, we should ask, is the professional bureaucracy, effectively the PMC, is it an agent of modernization today? And probably not. I mean, I, I think it, it's trying to squeeze out the last possibilities for modernization, which is what I referred to at the beginning, which is to create a kind of colorblind, um, colorblind class domination, right? This kind of perfect capitalism where you can't have any, um, you know, like basically you don't, it's not going to be white men ruling things. It's going to be truly meritocratic and you'll just have naked economic domination and exploitation uh, without extra, extra economic elements. Right. Okay. That's that's the last step of modernization that you can pursue. And, that, and that's it. It doesn't have any uh, green, great dreams of social transformation of even, for example, dealing with climate change through geoengineering or through grand initiatives. No, it wants to kind of recoil from uh, from modernity rather than kind of seize its possibilities. And, you know, when it sees the aberration like cruelty, a human rights violation, it can only imagine the intervention as being um, perfectly aligned with American national security. Yeah, um, yeah. Um, uh, agendas. Okay. So Hegel would um, hate the PMC. That was the uh, the answer to the question. <laughs> oh, so Hegel would, he would love the upright state bureaucrat. But, yeah, maybe, um, yeah. Right, but he would hate the PMC. Okay. Um, so um, Tara continues, like, should we, you know, um, acknowledge the uh, role that the Democratic Socialists play in this PMC, in unconscionable in the PMC? I, I'm going to skip that one, Tara. I think you asked a really, really interesting question before, but um, I'm just going to stay away from criticizing DSA for the moment. And uh, we can talk about this in other venues. Um Paul O'Neill, do you agree that the trauma sharing is useful because it is seen as the best form of networking? I I would I think there's in some ways the one of the um, the most like distasteful parts of the like public performance of trauma is that it it is that you can you can see in the the attempt that celebrities or others have of of trying to kind of produce empathy in you you can see how this like genuine human experience is being uh instrumentalized and that's why i think it's it's very it's very transparent so i guess what to kind of take paul o'neill's question from another angle it's like i mean i guess there must be a um there must be a, a way in which this performance of of trauma in amongst certain groups not amongst everybody but amongst like pmc types perhaps um it is a signal of a of a kind of shared cultural social identity so there is a there must be some sort of 
um, uh, function there because yeah, I think <laughs> like not like being open and talking to people and sharing your experiences, um, that's a good human thing to do. And it just shows how, um, how the PMC can ruin everything. Um, you know, the, the other thing I was going to say was, you know, Jennifer Silva's book about um, pain in um, the coal region, former coal mining regions, gives us a really different picture of how these working class former miners think about suffering. Like their narrative about suffering is not about sharing, overcoming. It's about like enduring pain without necessarily finding a public venue for it. And she does this like you know, careful sociological analysis, series of interviews in a town that she calls Coldbrook. And these working class people have a very different view of what they've, what they're going through. And they actually live with physical pain from um, the uh, mining and, and a lot of psychological pain. But there's a, they don't, yeah, the, the instrumentalization of trauma, it has not reached them, you know. So, um, William Rose, next question. Doesn't the trauma industrial complex transform problems that are rooted in economic precarity into personal problems that we all emphasize, empathize with, laundering out any political implications? To Catherine's point, this is resilience again, even resilience to making ends meet. So the resilience narrative, when it is lined up with poverty and um, economic um, suffering, always has the, and now I'm better, and now I make more money. And that's like, and the resilience allowed me to get myself in a more um, um, economically stable situation. And so um, after all of this suffering, after all these rejections, I, you know, from jobs, I finally did this, this and this. And um, the, per the transformation of the personal problem into something we can empathize with is really important. But I want to say something like more... Um, provocative than that. I think that the PMC in trauma industrial complex um, only fetishizes traumas that only that rich people can also have. That's think, the only kind of trauma they want to hear. Yeah. yeah. So I mean I, I like I, I I like this question. I think there's, you know, that that individualization, I think is in which I mentioned earlier. I think that is important because the more personal a, a problem is, the more atomizing and the more and the more difficult it is to respond to, the more overwhelming it seems. So there's a definite like a deep I, I was gonna say it's depoliticization, but it's not. It's a it's a political strategy. Um, because of course, like the first one of the first stages in, you know, the that old socialist project of taking control is is being a, you know, a, a subject that has that has the the desire to rule collectively. Um, and the more that the problems are, are seen as individual ones, the more that kind of impotence to to change things. Because if it's you against the world, that's a pretty you know pretty long odds. Um, so I think it is you know it's not just laundering out the um, uh, political aspects, but it's actually like in reinf making people feel more isolated and more atomized. So it has a kind of I would say another another layer to it as well. But I also think that the um, PMC producing trauma as content allows people to have a purely voyeuristic relationship to the experience of the other. Like, oh, that's horrible. The, there are legitimately horrible things that have happened to people um, who are ri rich and famous, but we have this, but the thing about, um, you know, film studies and theories of the gaze is we are protected from 
what we're witnessing. And so it's a kind of entry into it's it just, I'm just agreeing with you, George. Okay. So let me move on to the next question. This is really fascinating, but I wonder whether abstract discussions about the role that trauma, identity, fragility, and abuse play in discourse is really operating at the wrong register. Yeah, I think so. The point is that the whole paradigm of the personal as the political gives infinite latitude to those who want to derail political discussions. Totally agree. The question I have is not what is wrong with the discourse. I'm satisfied that it is terrible. But how do we actually respond when this shit is deployed and weaponized? I have been facing this in activism for 20 years, and I have still no idea how to deal with it. I don't know, but I definitely think this thing is about this. The use of this kind of very weaponized trauma discourse is about shutting down discussion. Well, I guess the question is whether solidarity is is possible, like whether the trauma is is um, individuating and, and sufficiently individual individualized that you can't express solidarity because you haven't had that same experience with somebody or whether you can because i mean this, yeah. this doesn't answer I, this this question no. at all there's no easy response but yeah sorry go on Alex. Uh, no i i think like in fact it often seems to be an opportunity for negative solidarity rather than solidarity yeah. which is to say i'm struggling so why should i care about or someone you else, don't know what right? i'm you don't know um, what i've been through so exactly. Have no exactly. I have my problems, and you know, you could, this can be deployed in any sorts of measures. I mean, you know, I, I, my answer to that would be to try to always enforce a division between public and private. Though maybe I'm, you know, I'm not that old, but maybe it makes me look like an old, you know, an old. Don't worry, Alex. You're old, old at heart. Because, You're old like, at it's heart, just, like I mean, me. It's just not operative in this world. Yeah, I'm happily so, happily so. Um, but you know, to say this, these are personal matters, I'm sympathetic. If we want to talk about it personally afterwards, that's fine. But it's just not something which is uh, appropriate to a public discussion. Yeah. Or yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, you almost have work. to perform <laughs> the. Um, you have to perform this new etiquette, which is, I'm really sorry that happened to you. But what does it have to do with our discussion? And at that yeah. point, you're like basically Satan in these ideas. <laughs> so, I'm not sure we've helped you out, Sam, but we, could, we, we don't have the protocols um, for just, we, preventing we just, you from becoming Satan. We can just say that we have sympathy. We have solidarity with your, with your plight. Uh. <laughs> we know how you feel. We know how you feel. Um, Eli Sinich, I'm not sure that I get the causality backwards there. Oh, this was feudalism brought forth a bourgeoisie and capitalism. This is in response to Alex. Why can't advanced capitalism bring forth a managerial class that implements fuller imperialism? So I'm going to um, answer this question very briefly, and then we have to go on to another question, which is that I think that um, there's the, the structures were there in the British Empire to produce a class out out of its work out of the most the brightest members most ambitious members of um the the petit bourgeoisie and send them out to rule the empire they would come back without you know social status but with capital so this idea of creating a um a clerisy that would execute um the the functions of empire are actually very old so i I'm not sure I've answered your question, but I do. There have been people who have said to me that I give too much power to the um, billionaire class, the capitalist class, that the PMC has actually exceeded the um, power of um, the capitalists, like with regard to like state pensions and things like that. And so that this 
And so this is what I think Eli is also saying is that there's a possibility that um, the PMC is now um, displaced um, the bourgeoisie as a ruling class. But I, but we've answered your question, Eli. I'm, I'm afraid this is not like a really satisfying answer, but we've got more questions and our time is limited. So I'm going to go on to Josh Kearns. What role do you see environmental constraints playing in the evolution of the PMC? PMC affluence is derived through economic globalization and isn't sustainable. It seems that economies will have to substantially relocalize in the coming years. Working-class people fill many or most of the primary producer roles, e.g. farmers, mechanics, builders, that underpin the workings of the economy and actually make everything work. Fix broken stuff. Do you think environmental constraints will force a reorientation of swaths of the PMC towards the working class and as and the essential parts of the economy? Can I, can I go ahead? No. No, my answer is no, but yeah, you have a Yeah, I mean, I, I kind of agree. I don't, I want, I'm not convinced that economic, cons uh, environmental constraints will impose themselves economically on rich world nations. Like, I don't just don't think it's going to happen or certainly not uh, in the near future. Um, what, I mean, I'm, I'm sure there's going to be some attempts to sort of, uh, you know, uh, reshoring some and shortening supply chains in, in pursuit of resilience, maybe a different sort of resilience to, to the one that we were talking about before, but um, maybe there's some connection there, some, some and that emphasis on resilience. But, um, but I think fundamentally, most environmental politics as pursued by the PMC, that is, and it's important to remember, a class which is divorced from consumption, excuse me, divorced from direct production, um, and who, you know, if you're a consultant, for example, you're not in, in directly involved in, in production, even in the, in the public, even in, excuse me, in the private sector, um, much, much less an academic or someone who works in the culture industries and so on. Um, your world is consumption. And so the only conception of responding to environmental problems is not through some Promethean grasping of the possibilities that modernity provides, for example, building out nuclear power, but recoiling from consumption to, to limit consumption. And whose consumption is going to be limited? Most likely the working classes. So I'm very skeptical of a lot of the environmental solutions that are on the table at the moment because they seem punitive. Um, and won't make life actually better for people and might not even really resolve the environmental crisis that we face. Well, so, a lot of our so lefty friends, let me just say this quickly. Yeah. A lot of our lefty friends have said, you know, that the environmental movement is completely dominated by PMC values. Like when they talk about the environment, the last thing they're talking about is the working class. Like they care more about the environment than about people. So the sort of saturation of PMC values within the environmental movement is one of the biggest problems we have today, I think, with in terms I, of getting to yeah. really sustainable, renewable energy. I, I think I'm I, I'm not sure I agree with the two of you in terms of the answer to this to this question. I mean, so my my reading would be that environmental kind of attitudes, and maybe this is what you were saying just there, Catherine, is is sort of one of the domains of a virtue that PMC can um, can hoard. So I think to kind of answer Josh, Josh's question directly, um, environmental constraints will force a reorientation of swathes of the PMC towards the working class. Yes, I think this will, I think this is, could very well happen if you change the word reorientation. And I think that is like a forcing downwards because if environmentalism is, um, you know, one way you could put it is an ideology of capitalism in retreat from production for whatever reason, whether it's like, justified objective environmental constraints or not 
Um, but I think there is potentially a downward pressure if there's a downward pressure on production, a downward pressure on, on the size of the PMC and what will happen. Some of those PMC will be, they won't be, they'll be forcibly reorientated uh, down, downward into to the working class. So I think, I think um, maybe that's not the logic that, that, that this question was mm. getting to, but I think, mm. you know, there, that there could well be for environmental reasons, increased competition within the PMC and some could well drop out um, and be downwardly mobile into into the working class i would say um okay well that's interesting um tara wanted to say i'm not to go back very quickly i didn't want to avoid the dsa question the democratic socialists of america question um i do feel like that um political organization is not a working class centered organization anymore it is a an organization of young precarious members of um college or college educated people who, who are aspirational PMC. And one of the things that I didn't want to do was like punch down because Dave Chappelle told me not to punch down. And um, I, I don't, and I think that this aspirational class has assumed the values of the political entity that they want to influence or enter, which is the, the Democratic Party. And that's that's what I that's all I'm going to say is an aspirational. It's a it's a political entity that could be left that could be working class oriented, but is not at the present. Although there are very good things happening within that organization, its dominant ethos is one of aspirational PMC liberals. Sorry. Can guys. I just can I no? Can I just jump in here really quickly? This um, Taurus question: best practice PMC intervention tips. It sounds like you're asking us to say if 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 someone that you know is is showing signs of being PMC, what what should you do? Well, I think you know the first thing is to is to listen um, non judgmentally to what they have. No, don't don't listen to, to them. I think that's in fact. We don't have best. Do. Oh yeah, everyone wants best practice. Um, make jokes. Uh, start cursing a lot. I don't know. Um, I'm I'm exhausted every day by my, you know, PMC contain rage containment attempts, but. I'm just very, I'm, I'm tired. This is what they also like to say on Twitter. I'm tired. I'm so tired. Um, and I don't know what else to say. Okay, Nadja, uh, Navarro's question. Do you see a connection between the replacement of political action by personal consumer choices and the substitution of collective empathy as basis for political action by individual trauma? Is it to immobilize any meaningful action for the masses and an explanation for voter fatigue? Yeah. Yeah. Yes. I, <laughs> the question. The my answer is yes. Well put. Yeah, I think so. Well put. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's a good. It's it's a good question. Good I mean, way that, of good way of know, putting that too. Yeah. I mean, I guess I guess the question is, is there a a link between the kind of the ideology of choice and and the performance of trauma? I don't. I don't know. It's a good. Yeah. Good question. And you know, it goes back to sort of um, an old school thing that Al Alex um proposed, which is that it's actually very difficult to have true empathy. And if you have this like constant, you know, spread of like private yeah. experience and then the expectation of pub public expressions of empathy, you're diminishing your capacity for private empathy and, um, you know, trivializing someone else's trauma too. 
and 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 I think this is something that you see today in the in the resistance to dis, to kind of PMC discourse, which is you have to care, you have to care about this. This is this new cause that you have to yeah. care about, and it's exhausting. It's exhausting for everyone. And that's um, why oh, it's yeah. so cathartic. The far the far right and the and Reddit and all that like trolling stuff on the internet is actually catharsis because their whole attitude is we don't care. I don't care. Yeah. I don't care. Like you're doing this. I don't care. And I have a, you know, a son who's 20 years old who's actually introduced me to like what troll troll memes are, what troll culture is, and this anti-PMC, directly anti-liberal. And it's like the op. So even if we have this like really insane, um, you know, enforced empathy, we have the emergence of a whole culture that's based on cruelty, sadism, online, low low value cruelty let's say in troll culture okay what this is our last question um my question is cheryl hudson is about what you will think what you think will happen now in response to the knobs pushback in the form of covid regulations and the like there's a lot of anger and an upsurge in conspiracy theories to explain what is happening because it is so illogical and also a massive decline in trust in institutions and leaderships there's no political vehicle but there are mass protests Will it explode? Is it only self-harming? Oh, wow. What a last question. Okay. Good question. Yeah. It's, I mean, it's, it's the big question at, at the moment because that does, at least in the, you know, it's very clear in the British context that there's not, you know, there, there is conspiracy, conspiracy explanations. There's um, um, a, a great deal of like, of just decline. Uh, yeah. Basically the evacuation of trust in, in, political institutions but there's no there's no vehicle of representation there's no alternative project if you you know to take the british political context conservative party is putting forward this set of of, of regulations the labor party says we just want a more technocratic um solution so there isn't really there isn't i mean there isn't really a political vehicle so i mean yeah it's stasis inertia is 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 more likely than anything else but also we've been anti we've been isolated for almost 18 months so the antisocial nature of the present is seems to be you know only exacerbating suspicion without organized political opposition okay guys i'm sorry we didn't get to um there's some very very good there's another good question about when a cotton resilience but maybe sebastian i could talk about this uh, um afterwards um we are at the end of our time and Thank you so much, Catherine, George, and Alex. Um, our goal with uh, this, these ideas with impact um, uh, programs is to bring uh, humanities faculty in conversation. And this was definitely a conversation, not just between the three of you, but with a very um, participatory audience and uh, who clearly are thinking about these same issues. and. Um, just reading through the questions was um, a really educational opportunity for me and, and very thought provoking. So um, we greatly appreciate both um, the, the intellectual work that you're doing, but also the ways in which you are um, um, thinking through how these um, intellectual ideas um, actually play out in the real world, so to speak. So. Um, on behalf of our audience, I thank you very much. Um, and on 
um, so, on behalf of Alka as well. But Alka can thank you herself that she's here. I just want to make one last mm -hmm. um, plug for the um, pod before Alka comes on. You can subscribe at all the places you look for your podcast. The Patreon um, is really great too. It's BungaCast and um, they do reading groups. They're doing... BungaCast does like incredible public education in matters in, and you'll hear a lot of discussions like this um, and maybe more, more less censored because it's podcast <laughs> and it's the wild west of broadcast media. But these guys are really doing, um, doing the Lord's work in the world of left podcasts. Well, um, Catherine, I thank you sincerely for bringing us all together and thank you, Alex and George, for joining us from around the globe, it seems like. We really hope you found it to be a beneficial conversation. And just to emphasize, you know, until almost the very end, there were over 50, actually consistently 60 audience members. So obviously this, um, uh, I think uh, it's a significant number. So it's uh, about these ideas actually opening up conversation. That is the, the real value and the impact that you're having. So thank you. Yes, we didn't lose the audience halfway through. They, they stayed. Um, so yes, yeah, so thank you everyone for coming. And um, this was live stream on Facebook. Yes, that's, I guess, where that's, um, probably there's a lot to say about that. Um, but the video will be available there and we'll be putting up um, the video on our Humane Center YouTube channel. So you can send more people to hear this um, conversation. So thank you again, everyone. Great, thanks so much. Thank you. Thanks so much. Right. Cheers. Thanks. Thanks, everyone. See you all around Thanks. virtually yeah. and in real life. <laughs> yeah. Bye. Okay. Bye. Thank you. Bye. Guys. Bye. Bye.